0: what to do shall they (laughs) murder stories lull the baby to sleep okay we're a little weird at first but you get used to us we're your favorite sisters except for if you have your own sisters probably (laughs) no but I'm gonna be you know your favorite we're gonna bump them bitches out of there kick
1: rocks other sisters no one likes you kick rocks (laughs) wake the fuck up or shut the fuck up
0: no one wants to hear about that you just told them I like to (laughs) poop (laughs) <laughs> it'll be uh, an adventure and we hope that you come along for the ride please subscribe
1: you'll make the baby cry if you don't
0: yeah don't upset ethan by not subscribing that's just rude welcome to suspicious a podcast with two sisters who are a bit obsessed with true crime, unsolved mysteries, extraterrestrials, and all things strange. Stay a while. Let's get weird.
1: Hi! Hello. Welcome to Suspicious. Hi, welcome. Ethan says, Hey there, how you doing? Hey there, hi there, ho there. Howdy
0: ho. If you don't know... Now you know. You know. <laughs> uh, we are a true crime podcast. Well, we're kind of like a history story time podcast. True things-ish stuff. Yeah. True, 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 truths. All, all the true things, except for if we say something that's wrong, don't come at us.
1: Don't at me, fool. Yeah. So. <laughs> I picked up on the mic. I can see it go bloop. <laughs> Ethan's gonna tell you his story today.
0: Okay. Is this the story of?
1: <laughs> Apparently he's yeah. This is what he does now because he likes to hear his voice. Are you hungry You're hungry now, of all things.
0: Of course, of course. <laughs> Let me
1: grab his bottle real quick. But I can read my story while I'm feeding him.
0: Okay. You will well, him know. go. Mmm, mm, mm. <laughs> Mm, delicious. I, I love the story.
1: It. I love it. Mm. It takes two, two takes. For it us. takes
0: two to make a thing go right. Ooh. It takes two. <laughs> no a more guy. singing oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, no more singing because it's copyright. <laughs> That's good.
1: <laughs> so. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for our stories. Still- do you know
0: what episode number this is, Angela? Uh, I do.
1: I, hang on. I do. You have to look at your notes. This will be episode seven. Correct. Ah. You know,
0: you know what's special about seven? It's our favorite number.
1: It is our favorite number.
0: Oh, I won't say why.
1: Okay. It's our favorite number. <laughs> I'm not either.
0: Okay. So episode seven, what are we going to get into today? Ta-day. Ta-da. The ootada. Ooh. My outfit of the day. <laughs> Haven't you heard that? No. <laughs> on, well, on TikTok, I think mostly they're like, "Guys, check out my outfit of my outfit of the day, my OOTD, my ooh tada.
1: I've heard OOTD,
0: but yeah, I haven't well, heard it added ooh, to it. I
1: know ooh tada. That's <laughs> ooh tada-ful. Ethan don't even like it.
0: See, he's not about. He's it He's like,
1: no, that's dumb. That's dumb and a half. <laughs> it's kind of funny though. I guess, Wait, I don't. I don't TikTok. I'm not cool. I'm too old. So,
0: so what's your stew oh, so, Your
1: story of the day. My stu ta <laughs> s- It's like that. Co- it's like that commercial. Have you heard that commercial? It's for like, what is it for? But they talk all weird. It's like it's, uh, they say weird words. Like, stu da and like it's ta-da. For today, they say "ta-da." I think. Oh, is it like the one where it's? Um... Yes, it's that one. Oh, what is it? Hold on.
0: <laughs> what did you want to do? ta yes. I don't know. I like that. You didn't know yesterday. Well, I don't know tada.
1: Come <laughs> on, exactly. It's that one. It's the ta-da one. <laughs> it's so <a little> stupid. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, see, I knew you would figure it out. <laughs> okay, so ta-da. <laughs> 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 it's so stupid uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, This podcast is just going to be 20 minutes of us laughing uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's terrible That's the dumbest okay. thing ever Okay, so my story today <laughs> Stewed, ta-da. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> never.
0: <laughs>
1: it's your laugh. It's that weird horsey laugh. The, the, the wheezy laugh is the thing that gets me all the it's time.
0: My, it's my old man wheeze.
1: It, it's the old man wheeze. It got me at Christmas. and <laughs> gets me now.
0: Okay. I got it. I've, I'm sure? going to be a professional. I'm a professional. Okay.
1: Okay. So my story today. Today's story. Today's lecture. No. <laughs> Today's story. My story today. Today's story.
0: Stop saying today. <laughs>
1: God damn it. People are gonna be like, I'm unsubscribing from this dipshit podcast right now. <laughs> you lost me. Ta-da. <laughs> Ta-da. We have no more followers. <laughs>
0: Don't say today anymore, just to start the story.
1: <laughs> don't tell me what to do. i am grown, I do what I want. This episode's first story today is the story of Zach and Addie. Which I have not heard. Which I'm actually
0: surprised, because it's been around for a while. But, okay. Well, maybe maybe it'll be the same as last week, where I'm like, I don't think I've heard it. And then you told me, and I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard it.
1: <laughs> maybe. Okay, so let me know when you're ready, and I will go. Ready? I'm ready. Okay. Go. Go. So, um, Zach Bowen was born in 1979. He he was described as an all-American guy with lots of friends, a healthy social life. He was um, described as good-looking, tall, and a decent person in the
0: I like when people describe it as a decent person. Like, he's decent. Like, he's all right. He's eight. Nothing special.
1: Well, I mean, decent. Like, I'd rather be known, as, I guess, as a decent person than a shithead.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. But wouldn't you rather be, like, a nice person than just a decent person? Like, mm. decent implies, like, you do the bare minimum.
1: Not necessarily. I mean, nice person sometimes implies that you're going to get walked all over. In the 1990s, Zach moved to New Orleans. And in 1996, when he was 18, he met a 28-year-old stripper named Lana Shupac. Um They eventually had a couple of kids and got married. Um, it is said that he loved his kids very much. If he's a decent person,
0: he should really love his kids. But he did. He,
1: like, um, from all accounts, he, like, was a good dad um, when he was with Lana and loved his kids. And that was his, like, main Things to be a good father to them. So by uh, May 2000, Zach decided that he was going to join the military to help support his kids and Lana. So he did really well in the U.S. Army and rose through the ranks to become a sergeant, received a NATO medal, and received a Presidential Unit Citation for service. So those are like good things to get in the in the army. Yeah, like they they help they help you like they're supposed to be really
0: good. And yeah, like are not like after titles and yeah. stuff.
1: So um, he... Oh, while he was serving, he did two tours, one in Kosovo and one in Iraq. And while in Iraq, he spent some time in Abu Ghraib. But many he spent time with while serving said that he had changed while he was there. Um, he had changed while he was overseas. He became less happy, um, depressed, and he wanted to go home. This intensified after um, a child that he had befriended was killed in a mortar attack in Iraq, as well as another child that he had befriended and talked to was killed for interacting with Americans. So, um, and the girl, it was a little girl who was killed for interacting with the Americans with him. So he had a lot of guilt for that. And for the little boy who was killed in the the mortar attack, the mortar attack just happened to be random, I believe. Yeah. So when Zach finally left the service, he really wanted to leave. Um, He was discharged. His commanding officer recommended that he get an honorable discharge. So with this recommendation, along with the medals and service citations he received, he should have been guaranteed an honorable discharge. But he was given a a general discharge from the U.S. Army. So general is less than an honorable discharge, even though it's still in like good standing. But because of that general discharge it meant that he could not qualify for the educational benefits for his service.
0: Yeah, that sucks. So,
1: yeah, so he um <laughs> <laughs> the baby just ripped off my headset. <laughs> God, I wish <laughs> that, that
0: had been captured on video. <laughs> he
1: just totally yanked on that was like nope.
0: <laughs> I was like, "Ooh." That was so funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's try that again. So Um, obviously, Zach was not happy. Um, He was upset with this, and he became really bitter kind of towards the Army and his service. Yeah, understandably so. So when he did return home, his mood, unfortunately, did not improve. Um, He was still unhappy and depressed. Um, He wasn't the same happy-go-lucky Zach that had left. His friends said that he most likely suffered from PTSD, but it went untreated. Ooh, that was a good one. Excuse me. Zach um, started to self-medicate and treat his um, undiagn- or untreated PTSD with alcohol. And shortly after he came back to the US, him and Lana separated. But he was still very active in his kids' lives. Uh, Zach was not really adjusting well to civilian life when he came back. But he seemed to do pretty well um, and became a bartender in the French Quarter. And then this is where he met a fellow bartender named Addie Hall. So let's talk about Addie Hall. So Addie Hall was born also in 1979. She was described as a free spirit, fun, creative, very artistic. She was well-liked, except on occasion when she wasn't, um, which per her friends meant because she had uh, drunken spells, quote unquote, Hmm. Um, and she was actually known to be a very mean drunk by everyone. But, uh, oh, not but. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's also said that that Addie suffered from bipolar disorder and that she had been abused uh, when she was really young and probably also suffered from PTSD from this. Mm -hmm. So this would explain explain some of her heavy drinking she did. Um, She also, though, loved to write poetry. She taught dance classes. Um, She is said, though, that despite her drinking, she was loved by the patrons at the bar that she worked at with um, Zach. So Zach and Addie worked together and eventually became friends. She didn't really like him at first. Like, she was fine with him, like, but she, everyone else was like, oh, he's so hot, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, eh, whatever. So that (laughs) might have piqued his um, interest in her a little bit more. Um, But they, you know, were friends. And in 2005, during Hurricane Katrina, they wound up getting closer when Addie said that Zach could um, stay with her and they could ride out the storm together. So they lived in a small apartment uh, above Voodoo Spiritual Temple. Um, I believe it's in the French Quarter as well. And soon the two actually became romantically involved. They called actually the best thing about their relationship was drinking.
0: That sounds romantic. I know.
1: And they would uh, binge drink together all the time. So, but despite the binge drinking that they did, they oddly um, thrived during the hurricane uh, it was basically like a giant, big, fun camping trip for them. They had no electricity, so they traded um, goods for drinks with people who also decided to stay and ride out the storm. Um, it was kind of a fun and free time for them. You know, No bills, no jobs, no rules. They just kind of did what they wanted. Um, Zach and Addie would also gain media attention, um, particularly because Addie would <laughs> show her boobs to the cops so they would keep patrolling the area because the area was unsafe. Yeah. So to keep the cops coming back, basically, she would flash them all the time.
0: That's hilarious. Um, Did they draw her beads?
1: No. Um, they were, uh, they actually were, Zach and Addie both were featured in the New York Times in an article about people who stayed through the hurricane. So there's a couple of famous pictures, now famous pictures of them hanging out in lawn chairs in front of their apartments on the street. So we'll post some of those, but.
0: Um, I was going to ask you if you have this.
1: Um, I do. But this um, fun, more carefree life soon disappeared when uh, stuff started going back to normal because Katrina ended and people were kind of filtering back in. And Zach and Addie's happiness would fade because they had to go back to real life. So this started putting strain on the two people. And they clearly had a lot of issues. So the stress and strain with their issues and their binge drinking was not a good combo. Now, as I said before, Addie is known as a uh, being a mean drunk, and she actually would uh, abuse Zach when, when she was in these moods, quote-unquote. So neighbors and friends also reported that they would be drinking a lot and constantly arguing very loudly. They reportedly had screaming matches um, all the time, and so it wasn't uncommon to hear them yell back and forth at each other. And sometime during the post-Katrina phase, they actually both started doing cocaine regularly. So again, this is not, it added to the volatile situation that they had. So it was yeah. not a good combo.
0: They needed some downers.
1: They just needed to not <laughs> do drugs, but they, so they were doing cocaine regularly, binge drinking regularly, fighting constantly. Yeah. Not a good situation. And on October 4th, 2006, they were both now 28. Zach and Annie wound up getting to a fight with each other. Addie went to her landlord and told him that she wanted Zach taken off the lease, and that Zach had cheated on her, and she told her landlord that she was kicking Zach out. The landlord uh, didn't necessarily believe Addie, asking if this had actually happened or if it was all in her head. So from this, it sounds like that this wasn't obviously the first encounter of her kicking him out. It sounded like this, um, from a couple of the stories I read, it sounded like it happened fairly routinely. Um, so the landlord didn't really comply with Addie's wishes and request and told her just to go back home and work it out with her boyfriend because they would literally break up, get back together, break up, get back together, like day in, day out every other day. So the landlord was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to
0: file that paperwork.
1: You'll be fine tomorrow. Just like always. Bye. So he told her to, you know, work it out with her boyfriend. So now we're going to jump in time to October 17th, 2006. So, at 8.30 p.m., cops responded to a call from the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel that someone had jumped off the fifth floor. When police showed up, they found a severely mangled body on the parking garage. Whose body was it? Addie's? It was Zach's. Oh. So, at first, it was unclear if Zach's death was a result of suicide, a murder, or just a very tragic accident. That was until they found a five-page note in Zach's back pocket and his house keys and the note was a suicide note and this suicide note cleared up some stuff but it also opened the door to much much more so the note said in in part this is not accidental I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took if you send patrol to 826 North Ramport you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven on the stove and in the fridge
0: oh my god
1: along with full documentation on both of us and a full sign confession for myself.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So you still don't. You still I've don't. never heard this story. Okay. So police sent patrol to the apartment. When they arrived, it, uh, they had the landlord let them. I think they had the landlord let them in. But it's confusing because they also had the keys. So I'm not sure. But when they arrived and went into the apartment, it was set to 60 degrees. So it was super cold. Mm hmm. When they looked around, the walls were spray-painted with messages of regret and pain, such as, I'm a failure. Um, So it was, like, scrawled across the wall. And there was also instructions um, to call Zach's ex-wife, Lana, and tell her that he loved her. So it had her name and phone number and stuff on there, along with, like, you know, tell her I love her. Uh, Again, one of the messages on the wall directed police to the stove. Here they found a large pot on the burner. Inside they found a human head. It was burnt beyond recognition, and in another pot on the stove, they found feet and hands. And when they looked in the oven, they found a large roasting pan that had arms and legs that were, again, burnt. Jesus. Investigators noted that it looked like there were seasonings on the limbs, but they also note- and they also noted cut up potatoes and carrots on the counter next to the stove. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So lastly, um, when the police checked the fridge, they discovered a large plastic bag. When they looked in the plastic bag in the fridge, there was the torso in it. So pin there. Now we're going to jump back to October 5th. So the day after Addie went to her landlord and said that she was kicking Zach out. Mm -hmm. So October 5th, 2006. Per Zach's suicide note, as well as evidence from the scene,
0: He's excited about this story. He's super excited.
1: So per the suicide note and evidence from the scene, Zach um, stated that they both were in their apartment and that he had killed her about 1 a.m. He said, quote, killed her at 1 a.m. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick, unquote. He also stated that he, after he had killed her, he had sex with her dead body several times before passing out next to her. And then he eventually got up um, and went to work. That's so gross. Yep. Uh, the ne- He went to work basically the next day. Nothing happened. Like nothing happened. Nope. Wow. After some time, he wound up dismembering Addie in the bathroom, uh, I believe in the tub, with a hacksaw and a knife. He left the parts in the bathroom for a few days before he decided to um, cook them. So he went out and did normal things while her body was just hanging out in the, the tub. So then he decided to cook them. Ethan says that's disgusting. I agree. He cooked what he could, managed to get in and on the stove and in the oven to, quote, separate the meat from the bone, per the suicide note. So this was done as an attempt to get rid of the evidence. That's why he scorched and burned stuff beyond recognition. Police do state that there was nothing that suggested he was planning or was trying to consume Addie. So there are some stories that listed it basically the story about it like he was making gumbo, girlfriend gumbo or something like horrible like that but he wasn't. So I think they just happened to have food out like the potatoes and carrots I mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah, maybe from the, the stove, dinner
1: possibly. But it wasn't there was nothing that suggested at all that he was trying to like eat her. So he was basically just charring the body to make it as unrecognizable as possible. So during the time between the murder and his suicide, he decided to fill his time with, quote, good food, good drugs, good strippers. (laughs) Sounds like a party to me. Yeah. So he basically was completely numbing himself, obviously. Um, And again, in his note, he claimed that... This was an, a, very, a very enjoyable time for him, but he, however, was still filled with guilt. Um, I think kind of as he was coming down from, you know, binge drinking drugs, maybe he was having like a mental break and he kind of was coming back to it. So he was having very terrible guilt over the crime he d- he did. And he wrote as well, quote, I scared myself, not only by my actions of calmly strangling a, wo- strangling a woman I've loved for one and a half years, but by my entire lack of remorse. I have known forever how horrible of a person I am. Ask anyone, unquote. Zach had then burnt his body with cigarettes. He said that he had burnt himself for each year that he was a failure. Police also noted the burns, these burn marks on his corpse when they had done like the autopsy and stuff.
0: Was there a account?
1: Of how many burns? I think it was 28 because he was 28 years old. So he basically mm-hmm. did one, like one for every year he was alive because he yeah. was, cons- he considered himself a failure. So Zach, um, also spent some time in the apartment writing messages and spray paint on the walls, kind of scrolling it everywhere. So now we're going to jump back to October 17th, 2016. So the, the day that Zach, um, c- committed suicide. So these were 10
0: years apart or no this was within the same month
1: it's in the same it's within days so he oh, okay
0: i thought you said 2006 earlier i'm sorry
1: yeah i did october so you just said
0: 2016
1: oh i'm sorry october 17th 2006 okay so the fight between them happened on october 4th and then he stating that on basically october 5th at 1 a.m he murdered her and right. then he wound up killing himself on october 17th okay Sorry, I didn't meant to say 06. So security footage showed Zach arriving at the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel before 8:30. Um, after a night that he had been out partying, he can be seen approaching the edge of the building several times before drinking one last drink and then jumping off to his death. Um, it said that he did die on impact. Mm. So the heinous crime shocked the citizens of New Orleans clearly, and they were still because they were just still getting over the aftermath of Katrina. There was a journalist, Ethan Brown. He wrote a book about Zach and Addie called Shake the Devil Off, a true story of the murder that rocked New Orleans in 2009. Um, In 2014, Rob Florence made a documentary called Zach and Addie. Um, They've also set up a tour in the building where the murders took place um, called Bloody Mary Haunted... Museum and tour, and this started um, in 2016, so 10 years after. Um, so, this tour started after priestess Miriam of the Voodoo Spiritual Temple wound up moving out. Uh, on this tour, you can see the original fridge and stove as they still remain in the apartment, but they have added fake blood splatter and stains
0: on them for oh, effect. Jesus. Yeah. That's so strange to me. Yeah. Like, I get that, like, obviously, true crime is, like, an obsession. Obviously, we have a podcast about it. But to, like, memorialize the site. Well, I think it's because it was so
1: unexpected and unusual. It was just so crazy. Yeah. And I I believe there are people who are, like,
0: upset. Upset like Ethan?
1: Upset. Yeah. There are people who are upset that they're, you know, doing tours and trying to capitalize off of the crime. But yeah. There are a few theories, actually, in why um, Zach killed Addie. Some believe that there was a demonic presence that came up from the voodoo shop down below into their apartment and influenced Zach. Um, however, Priestess Miriam, the owner of the voodoo shop, was very well known in the area and well respected in the French Quarter. And despite this fact of them... Um, having negative influences in the demonic presence, there had been um, no bearings of actual proof that, you know, this happened. I did hear there was uh, like one of their neighbors who lived in their apartment and said that they (laughs) lived in their apartment before Zach and Addie lived there. And he had stated that like he got bad, just bad feelings. Yeah. Bad vibes in the apartment. So he wound up moving kind of to an apartment next door. So, and then another theory is that Zach obviously had lingering issues from his time overseas on his tours and PTSD went untreated that obviously coupled with drugs and alcohol and such a volatile relationship didn't help. And that maybe because Addy was so abusive um, physically and verbally that he, and on top of Zach constantly feeling like a failure, which seemed to be a major thing in his life Yeah, that he just snapped one day and killed her in like some kind of, mental break. And that at first he tried to cover it up, but then couldn't. And so then he killed himself. So whatever the reasons that he did, he did seem to show real remorse at the end. Um, He clearly confessed to the crime and ultimately killed himself over it. Police also say that there was no clear evidence that he was... Oh, I'm sorry. There was clear evidence. Uh, Police say that there was clear evidence that he was... Hang on, sorry. The cat is... <sighs> Hang on, he stole a pen off my tail. He always steals pens! <laughs> okay, that's my pen! God, always steals pens. Like, always.
0: So annoying. Sorry. Chevy loves chopsticks or straws.
1: Like, I don't get it. Always steals a freaking pen. <laughs> freaking annoying. I don't know if anyone else... Side note, sorry, in the middle of my story. I don't know if anyone else's cat steals pens, but it's freaking annoying. It's so weird. Uh, Police also say that there was clear evidence that he was confused and disgusted with his actions over what he had done based on the notes on the wall and his suicide note. So, but all we really know for sure is that two young lives were ended both super tragically that day and that the tale of the tumultuous relationship between Zach and Addie was filled with love, but also drugs, alcohol, and Indian murder. And it will haunt kind of New Orleans and that area and live on seemingly for a while, if not forever. Yeah. And that was my story of Zach and Addie.
0: Gruesome, man.
1: Pretty brutal. I can't believe you haven't heard that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you've seen the picture, though, because the picture is pretty popular if you look it up. um, I don't know. Type in Zach and Addie, and then it's literally like the first photo that comes up. It's like them sitting kind
0: of on their in the sidewalk. Oh, uh, yeah, I've never seen it before. Oh. They look like they're drug users, though. Interesting. Oh, yeah, I see photos of, like, um, stuff written on the wall. It's kind of crazy. Dang, there's a picture of them, like, on a beach where they look, like, healthy. Like, stark comparison to later pictures. That's crazy, though. Well, mm-hmm. and When you were telling it, I was wondering, like, well, how did none of the neighbors hear that he killed her? But if he strangled her and she didn't make really much noise
1: well and if they argued constantly and fought constantly if there it's wasn't probably any used to it there were you know there'd be no no difference
0: so um i knew that your story took place in new orleans and so i searched for new orleans uh serial killers and um i found this unsolved story and started looking into it and then i it turned into a bigger story so Louisiana really isn't a big part of this story, but, um,
1: That's all right. it is how I
0: connected the two together. So, um, you may have heard of him before. Um, this is the story of Samuel Little and he's one of the, um, he's known as one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. You'll let me know.
1: <laughs> I, I'll let you know. Cause his name doesn't, ring a bell off hand, but if he's known by another moniker, I might know. He's not. Can you hear me? He's
0: just, yeah. Okay. He's just known as Samuel Little. So um, Samuel was born in Georgia, June 7th of 1940. um, And not much is really known about his early life. Per his account, his mother was a prostitute. And um, it was reported that she gave birth to him while she was in jail. And at an early age, he ended up moving to Lorraine, Ohio, where his grandmother ended up raising him. He attended Hawthorne Junior High School where he had several disciplinary um, problems. And eventually in February of 1954, he was sent to a reform school called the Boys Industrial School in Columbus, Ohio for stealing a bike. I might know this, but
1: keep
0: going. Um, So he ended up leaving the reform school about a year and a half later with 47 disciplinary infractions. So clearly showing like, not really a person who's able to be rehabilitated and is constantly in trouble
1: Mm.
0: okay so i
1: did hear that like the reform schools back in the day were like terrible they didn't really reform you they just basically like beat you all the time and like abuse the kids so something to be something to be noted slash said yeah
0: but but continue Okay, so in 1956, at the age of 16, Samuel committed his first real crime in Omaha, Nebraska, breaking and entering and burglary. He was held for juvenile offenders due to his age. Then in 1961, when Samuel was about 20 or 21 years old, he broke into a Lorraine furniture store and was sentenced to three years in prison. And by 1966, Samuel showed violence against a woman for the first time on record, at least. Um, He was about 25 years old at the time and was arrested in Cleveland, Ohio for assault and battery after beating a woman. In his late 20s, he moved to Florida with his mother and began working several jobs, one of which was in a cemetery and then one of which, per his own account, was as an ambulance attendant. And this is where he would kill his first victim, 33-year-old Mary Brosley. So he picked up Mary from a bar in North Miami Beach on New Year's Eve in 1970. And, you know, from her perspective, she probably just saw his, he was a charming man. He had crystal blue eyes, which, you know, he was African-American, so was pretty uh, uncommon. And um, they ended up sharing a drink at the bar. And Mary told him that she had left her family back in Massachusetts after they had confronted her about a drinking problem. And Mary was reportedly missing from Massachusetts. Where Mary was reported missing from Massachusetts earlier that year in June of 1970. So from Samuel's perspective, she was like the perfect victim, right? She's a lone woman. She'd been missing from her home state for about six months. She hadn't been in Florida long, um, so she really had no ties to the community or friends. Which is like why. The- why, divulge, why that?
1: divulge that information to
0: a complete stranger that you're just meeting like, and you are like, yeah.
1: Like, hello. Yeah. Not saying that, like that constitutes anything, but I'm just saying like, right. why divulge that much information about yourself? Always make it seem like people know where you're at. You have people around you that constantly love and check in on they, you. Yeah. That you hang out with all the time. Like make it always seem like you are a well to well known person in the community.
0: Yeah, unless you know somebody like really well, like you've been friends for a long time, and sure, you want to like maybe give them some more details of your life, but like just meeting somebody, yeah, it makes no sense. There's no sense of like SSDGM in her.
1: Yeah, she's like, hi. Oh, by the way, here's my ATM pin code. Here is my My social. Yeah, I'm completely (laughs) alone.
0: (laughs) No one knows. (laughs) So, um, And then also, so to the point of like this being like such an easy target, Samuel even thought about it in the perspective of they're out celebrating on New Year's Eve in a bar with drunk people. So even if people saw them leaving together, are they really that credible of witnesses because they're all drinking? So um, it was like a perfect crime for him. So they ended up driving towards the Everglades on US 27 and stopped in a secluded area Detectives indicated that Mary climbed into Samuel's lap and began to play with his chain that he wore around his neck, and that's when he suddenly strangled Mary to death and buried her body in a shallow grave. Mary's body was found 23 days later, and they were unable to identify her remains at the time. Her cause of death listed was as unclassified, but her autopsy report was filed again in 1982 and declared a homicide. Mary's body wasn't identified until 2017 when dental records were used by the medical examiner's office. And that's pretty common for a lot of his cases, that they weren't actually solved until decades later when forensics um, had a lot of advancements. So in 1971, Samuel was charged with armed robbery in Cleveland, Ohio. While awaiting his trial, he was then charged with sodomy. Um, He was found not guilty of the robbery charge and was never even tried on the sodomy charge. Next year, in 1972, Samuel met his PIC, partner in crime, Aurelia Jean Dorsey. She was 30 years older than him and remained his girlfriend for 16 years. They were travel companions who drifted through the Midwest and the South. And, you know, because they were drifters, they didn't have jobs. So they supported themselves with shoplifting, burglary, and fencing stolen goods. Um, Aurelia Jean eventually died of brain hemorrhage in 1988. And during this time, you would like, not necessarily you would think, but a lot of times when serial killers have relationships, sometimes it slows down their killing, but that wasn't the case for Samuel. He, um, he never stopped killing during those 16 years and confessed to committing several murders, uh, later in time. And most of the victims remain unknown to authorities. So he had significantly more run-ins with the law when he was living his nomad lifestyle. Throughout 1957 to 1975, he had been arrested over 26 times across 11 states, including Ohio, Maryland, Florida, Massachusetts, California, Oregon, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Illinois, Georgia, and Louisiana. Those crimes included fraud, driving under the influence, armed robbery, drug possession, assault, solicitation of a prostitute, assault on a police officer, theft, and rape. So he got around. He got around. He, and, he, and, and he was like a. He didn't discriminate against what kind of crimes.
1: Yeah. Oh, I do know who it is. I cheated and I looked. I saw and, you looking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Because
1: I just wanted to see what he looked like. Right before you uh, said he was black. And then as soon as I, uh, the pictures pulled up, I was like, oh, yeah, I do know of him because I saw something you'll probably talk about later. Um, Maybe. But, but, yeah. So I do I do know of him. I just didn't reco- realize
0: that was his name. Yeah. And I um, – usually serial killers are known by their full name with middle name. And I don't know if he just never had a middle name because I can't find any documents with it. So I wonder if um, he was born without a middle name because it's not like you have to have one. yeah. Or maybe he just didn't go by his middle name. So you only go by what you're. No, but usually for serial killers, they will do your full legal name because oh. most, most names are really common. So it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, his name was John Smith. Like there's a million John Smiths. So it's John True. Robert Smith, you know? Yeah. Um, so for all of those crimes, uh, the 26 arrests that he had during those years, um, he ended up only serving a total of 10 years combined, which is pretty minimal. Um, Samuel claimed that he picked up boxing while in prison and was on his way to pursue a prize fighting boxing career, which never happened. <laughs> yeah. I doubt that. Liar. <laughs> Liar. Um, so then September 1976, Samuel was arrested for attempted ravish rape just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. The victim declared that Samuel used an electrical cord to choke her from behind. He forced her into the car, beat her unconscious, And then he drove her to a secluded location where he raped her. This was a trend that would continue with his victims. Beat, rape, strangled to death. The victim was lucky enough to escape with her life. Um, I didn't get a ton of details on this particular crime, but it's likely that uh, he left her for dead thinking that she was dead. And she actually wasn't. She was hanging on to her life. Um, And this type of crime at the time, again, in the 70s, only garnered a measly three months sentence in a county jail. Which is unfortunate, because if women's if crimes against women were taken more seriously back then, a lot more deaths could have been avoided. Well, also, not ne- necessarily that, but if
1: attempted murder got more time than, or as much time as murder, like, you're getting less time because you didn't... She didn't actually die. She didn't actually die, or you didn't... Even though
0: mm-hmm, you thought but, she did,
1: yeah. Or that you didn't follow through enough or whatever like that sounds terrible but that you that your murder failed you get less time or like
0: a little slap on the wrist yeah it's actual murder but not even just the murder right so there was rape charges I'm sure there was false imprisonment so uh, yeah I think it's a little bit of both it's uh part of it is especially back then those kind of crimes against women like rape and stuff weren't treated as horrifically as they are. Especially if they were in the prostitute. Right. The sex sex work business. Yeah, exactly. So LAPD homicide detective Mitzi Roberts, um, who was assigned to the cold case unit in 2018 um, and was actually one of the people who ended up catching Samuel in the end uh, when she was. I was going to say, I recognized her name. When you said her name, I was like, I know that name. name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So she thought when she was first getting involved in the case that uh, more cases could be solved by connecting Samuel to the unsolved or cold cases. And this wasn't, this wasn't the case. It wasn't as easy as she was initially thinking because Samuel specifically targeted marginalized people to his advantage. So he knew that there were gaps in the justice system with regards to, um, certain types of crimes. Right. So he targeted black women, he targeted sex workers, drug users, uh, because he knew that those cases were typically not as thoroughly investigated as if it were to happen to a white counterpart um, or somebody who was, you know, like a business person.
1: Yeah. Um, He did, he did murder white.
0: Yes, but they were either either sex work, sex work or drug users. Um, Mm. So November of 1982, he was arrested for shoplifting in Pasigula, Mississippi. Police at the time realized he matched the description of the suspect in the murder for Melinda Rose LaPree. So he was arrested in Mississippi and charged with the 22-year-old's murder. Witnesses, all sex workers at the time, testified that Samuel was seen with the victim right before her murder. They also testified that he was a very violent individual and assaulted them with similar methods that he used against the victim. And when the case was brought to a grand jury, there wasn't enough evidence against Sam, so they declined to indict him. One of many cases, again, where he slipped through the cracks of the justice system. So while still under investigation for the Lupri murder, he was transferred to Florida to stand trial for the murder of another woman. According to one witness, Sam met 26-year-old Patricia Ann Mount, a mentally ill woman, at a bar the night she disappeared. Her bruised and battered body had been found in a field, She had been beaten, raped, and murdered by Samuel, but the jury didn't trust the witness statements. Only deliberated for 30 minutes, and Sam was acquitted. Now, in August of 1982, the body of 20-year-old Rosie Hill was discovered next to a pig pen in Marion County, Florida. She had been strangled or suffocated to death. Samuel was questioned by investigators at the time, but again, they did not have enough evidence to arrest him. Samuel later confessed to her murder and to dumping her body, but this was decades later. During interrogations after he confessed, he told detectives that Rosie was, quote, a big fighter, but I won the fight. Minnie Hill, Rosie's mother, was interviewed on October 10th of 2019 in her Memphis, Tennessee home, and she told the Associated Press that Sam was, quote, nothing but the devil. Minnie, who was 71 at the time of the interview, had found a way to forgive Samuel, saying, quote, I have to for God to forgive me because I do wrong and God forgives me. Rosie Hill grew up in the Memphis area and became pregnant in high school. She moved to Florida to live with her grandparents and gave birth to her baby girl. Later, she moved to Aguila, Florida, where she lived the remainder of her life. August 8th of 1982, Rosie called her mother and said, quote, I am up to something, but I can't get out of it unless I leave from here. So I'll be home on the weekend. Rosie never showed. On August 12th, she was reported missing in Florida, and her parents flew down to search for her. But just like with detectives, all the, all the ends were dead. Two years later, Minnie received a call from the morgue, and the body had been so decomposed that her mother tried to keep basically like keep a little bit of hope that maybe it wasn't her, but it was. Um, then in October f- of 1984, Sam made his way to San Diego, California, and assaulted two women police found a woman unconscious and bleeding in Sam's car. He was arrested and charged for the assault and for another assault that had occurred a month prior. Sam was tried for attempted murder in both cases, but the jury deadlocked, which if you don't know deadlocked jury or hung jury means that the extended deliberation that they were in still did not uh, come to the required supermajority decision. Sam did plead guilty to assault and false imprisonment and served two and a half years of his four-year sentence. February 1st of 1987, he was released from prison and, um, and he was paroled and he moved to the Los Angeles area. Shortly after his release, 41-year-old Carol Alford was found dead in a South LA alleyway on July 13th of 1987. She was naked from the waist down with only one sock on. There was drag marks near her body, which indicated that she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped. Official cause of death was asphyxia through through manual strangulation. She suffered a beating as well. There was bruises all along her jawline, hemorrhages in and around her eye, and scratches and abrasions to her neck. Autopsy also indicated hemorrhaging to her voice box and the hyoid bone, which is the U-shaped bone at the base of the tongue. Now, This wasn't linked to Samuel Little until 2012, when her sexual assault kit and clothing were tested for Sam's DNA. The semen found on Carol's shirt and bra were a match for Samuel. After Carol's murder, Sam would admit to nine more killings. August 14th of 1989, L.A. police officers responded to a call about a homicide in a parking lot of a nightclub and restaurant on East 7th Street. The body was found inside a dumpster and was identified as Audrey Nelson. Again, she was naked from the waist down. Her sweatshirt had been pulled up around her shoulders. There was dirt on her back and drag marks on her upper shoulders. Like Carol, Audrey had been murdered elsewhere and dumped. The medical examiner on her case, Dr. Carpenter, concluded that the cause of death was strangulation by bare hands. Before her death, she had received blunt force trauma consistent with being punched repeatedly in the head. And the hard bone of Audrey's spine had been crushed during a blow to her upper central abdomen. Dr. Carpenter indicated during the trial, quote, this type of force is the greatest I have seen in the 27-year practice in a county that has its share of strangulation cases. Which is, like, intense to be punched in the stomach so hard that your spine breaks. Yeah. Well, that's because he was a boxer. Prize fighting. That was his career. But I'm saying, like, you
1: know, he... If he was, I'm sure he was physically like very strong. Yeah. If he was, that was, he was pursuing. I'm sure he was able to punch really good.
0: Yeah. So Samuel was linked to Audrey's murder in 2012 when DNA under her fingernails were tested and matched. In court, Sherry Nelson, Audrey's sister said, Audrey was a rebel and a heart soul. She studied cosmetology when she was 19 before leaving home. She then moved to New York and was forced into prostitution. There, Audrey suffered horrible burns in an apartment fire. Eventually, she moved back to LA to get back on track with her life. And Audrey's daughter, Pearl Nelson, who was also in court um, and was currently being raised by Audrey's parents, gave a statement saying, quote, the reason my mom was in Los Angeles in the first place is because she had gotten her life back on track and was on her way to reunite with me. Samuel Little consistently used drugs as a means to lure in his victims. Audrey and Carol both had cocaine in their system at the time of their death. And a month later, on September 3rd of 1989, LA police responded to a homicide at an abandoned auto repair shop on South Ascot Avenue. The victim was 46-year-old Guadalupe Apotica. Again, she was naked from the waist down and covered in bruises on her neck. The medical examiner determined that Guadalupe died of manual strangulation. Guadalupe had bruises on her tongue from biting down on it during a seizure that she sustained during her strangulation. Now the examiner on her case was Christopher Rogers and he decided to review the autopsy, <laughs> he decided to review the autopsy reports of Audrey Nelson and Carol Alford and noted many similarities. He recalled all the deceased were between 35 and 46. They had all been strangled manually. They all had blunt force trauma. They were nude from the waist down and all were found in Central LA, South Central LA. And all had cocaine in their system. Hey, that's another them, thing our stories had in common. Cocaine. Cocaine. And two of them had alcohol in their system as well. Bad mix. Um. So the last murder that Samuel would ever commit was in 2005. Sam Dang. met Nancy Carol Stevens. I know. Like literally four decades of killing. That's crazy. So Samuel met Nancy Carol Stevens. And according to investigators, she felt comfortable enough with Samuel and entered into his RV. Samuel told detectives that he was traveling in his RV with Nancy when he decided to kill her in a Walmart parking lot in Tupelo, Mississippi. He dumped her body on the side of the road, and Nancy's body was found in Lee County, and the autopsy revealed that she had been strangled to death. So is he crossing states and dumping bodies too? Um, no, he usually dumped bodies, uh, in the same vicinity ish of where he took them. Um, but yeah, he, he killed over many States. So let's see after his extensive killing career, Samuel continued to commit petty crimes such as burglary, DUI, larceny, theft, and shoplifting between the months of May and August of 2007. Sam was arrested for possession of cocaine in Los Angeles.
1: I wonder why all of a sudden he stopped killing in 2005. Like, I why if, was
0: he like, okay,
1: that's cool, I'm done, and then I'm just gonna continue to commit petty crimes.
0: Well, so sorry, you I, might get to it later, but you can. Just no, I about. don't necessarily have a. I don't necessarily address it completely, but a little later, there's um, a part where I go into how um, basically like sex and death were like combined in his mind. They were like the same yeah like so but my thinking is just that like maybe as he got older like his dick didn't work and so maybe I don't know
1: um I was just curious if you if you happened to to had found out like why all of a sudden just in 2005 or if he's continued to do it more and he just didn't say
0: maybe I mean none of his confessions went beyond 2005 so Hmm. there could be more and he just didn't say anything um Okay, so between the months of May and August of 2007, Sam is arrested for possession of cocaine in Los Angeles. He pled guilty and was sentenced to a drug diversion program, but subsequently failed to appear to it and failed to appear in court, and the judge issued a bench warrant, but it was non-extraditable. In April 2012 detective Mitzi Roberts was assigned to the cold case homicide case unit in Los Angeles. She first noticed the similarities in the Alfred Nelson and Apotica cases. All victims were dumped and found within a five mile radius of each other. In that same month, detective Roberts began looking into the background of Samuel little. She found out that Samuel had been living in the South Los Angeles area between 1987 and 1989 during the time of all the victims deaths. Mitzi discovered that Sam was currently in custody in Kentucky. She sent detectives there to interview Sam as well as obtain oral swabs. She then compared the DNA found on the victim's bodies and they all matched. During the initial interviewing, Samuel bragged about being a middleweight prized boxer and confirmed that he had been living in the San Diego and South Central Los Angeles areas from 1987 to 1990. When detectives showed Sam photos of Nelson and Apotica, he said that he had never seen them before in his life, and he was pretty adamant about it. He um, he would just con- continually say, I'm innocent. I didn't kill them. I'm innocent. Now, in September of 2014, he went to trial for the murders of Carol Alfred, Audrey Nelson in Guadalupe, Apotica. At this time, Samuel was 74 years old. So during the trial, um, again, he consistently claimed that he was innocent and he would even interrupt grieving members of the victims' families who were giving statements so that he could say that he didn't kill anyone. In his own statement, he claimed that he had been convinc- that he had been convicted on lies from witnesses coached by liars and hoped that he would get a new trial. Yes, leave it in. <laughs> he also said, quote, "The obsession with labeling me a serial killer without any proof was illegal lynching." At one okay. point, right there's plenty of proof, sir. Um, at one point, Sam's defense lawyer told him to shut up after he kept exchanging words with the son of one of the victims during their statement. Tony Zambrano, the son of Guadalupe Apatica, said, quote, you took something very dear to me. You messed up big time. You hurt my mom. Samuel interrupted Tony and said, I didn't do anything to your mom. However, the wheelchair-bound Samuel was no longer fooling anyone, especially now that there was a decade of advancements in sciences that proved and linked him to these crimes. Two jurors after the sentencing said that the evidence against him was so overwhelming that it was easy to reach the guilty verdict in two hours. He was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And after his sentence was read, he screamed, I didn't do it! (laughs) okay I believe you just keep claiming that well
1: (laughs) well it's funny too that obviously we find out later that you know he's involved in more or whatever but like he protests too much like I didn't do it I didn't do it I didn't do it and then he's like oh by the way let me just break down
0: for you I lied I'm a liar (laughs) no totally yeah (laughs) he kept he maintained his innocence for a very long time how long do you know um well, I mean, since he started committing crimes up until 2018. Oh, oh, 2018. That's when he finally started confessing. That's probably, that's, I think that's why I know
1: about it uh, too, but I didn't, that's probably why I knew like his face. Because and, like, like and a lot some more of, things some of the, recently of the other stuff with it, And yeah. then, but I didn't recognize his name. That's why when you said his name, I was like,
0: I have no idea. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Continue with your, your, um, your tale.
0: Okay. Where am I? Okay. Sorry. So. It wasn't until the year 2018 when Samuel was 78 years old that his claims of innocence would diminish. Texas Ranger James Holland began interviewing Samuel along with the help of FBI analysis or analysts (laughs) (laughs) Chrissy Palazzolo and Angela Williams. Samuel was being held at a California prison in the LA area. um, And James decided to visit Samuel in the hopes of solving the 1994 murder of Denise brothers. James gained the trust of Samuel, leading him to confess to Denise's murder and many more in exchange for transferring out of the LA County prison. Now, Denise's body was found in Odessa, Texas, a month after she had been reported missing on February 2, 1994, in the parking lot of a Coca-Cola bottling facility. It was also less than a mile from where she had last been seen. An employee stumbled upon her body and initially thought that she was a mannequin. She was partially nude and decomposing. An autopsy revealed that she had been strangled to death. Denise's son, who was 14 years old at the time, was brought to her body and forced to identify her, which is rough. Um, In an interview with The Cut, Samuel recalled the day he murdered Denise in grave detail. He said that he picked up Denise, a sex worker at the time, in his white Cadillac. He told her that he was an artist and could draw her so pretty, like Van Gogh. He also told her that she was beautiful and that he loved her which apparently he told all of his victims that he loved them. He pulled uh, into an alleyway with Denise where she prepared to give him a BJ and he grabbed her by the throat and tossed her over into the back seat where he strangled her to death with one hand while he masturbated with another, with the other.
1: How many hands did he have?
0: (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Um, So this is where I mentioned that killing and sex were really synonymous to Samuel and they were, like intertwined so that's why my thinking is maybe they stopped because he couldn't perform anymore mm. I don't know did he oh no go ahead what Never mind. what no I was what
1: what did it say if he told the other like people like his victims that he would draw their pictures and that he was a great artist and that kind of stuff too or
0: I don't know oh. I didn't get details on if he used that to lure other people or not
1: did, um he didn't draw her picture
0: I mean, at that time, probably not. Oh, okay. Um, But drawing will come into play. I know.
1: You (laughs) bitch. draw draw me like one of your French (laughs) girls. That's the thing I didn't want to say earlier. Okay, so
0: he made the process, quote, as long and slow as possible. That's what Um, she said. He would play games with them, making them black out and then come to and then black out and then come to and repeat that until he finally let them take their last breath. He said, quote, I wanted their helplessness. All I ever wanted was for them to cry in my arms. Creepy. Um, He pled guilty and received another life sentence on top of the three that he already had on December 13th of 2018. So over the years, detectives had tried, um, but were having a hard time getting Samuel to confess to additional cold cases, much less cases he was, much less the cases he was spending three consecutive life sentences for. However, James Holland was able to retrieve Sam's darkest, well-kept secrets over the course of 16 months and 650 hours of interviews. Samuel confessed to the strangulation of 93 women across the United States over the span of four decades. James did whatever he could to get critical information out of Samuel, which included um, really having the interviews behave more like casual conversations and storytellings, And so their conversations were held over Dr. Pepper and Brahms milkshakes, uh, which were requested by Samuel. And uh, essentially, James would try to um, give Samuel whatever he wanted in order for him to continue to confess to these crimes. I don't know if Dr. Pepper wants to be tied to that. Yeah. So James played Sam's ego, making him think that he was in control. And James said, quote, I know you're a powerful man, a powerful man in the mind. And Samuel replied, if you think so, while laughing. Because most of Samuel's murders occurred before modern forensic science, detectives had to work with any clues that they had at the time, no matter how small. And that included a Western Union money gram from 1982, a witness who spotted a yellow Dorado, sorry, a yellow El Dorado, and a sex worker's last meal of carrots. James Holland and the other detectives also had to work at a rapid pace because the longer it took to extract these stories, and the details, the worse Sam's health and memory were deteriorating. Although the memories of Samuel, um, with regards to what the victims were wearing or the dates, um, in which they died, weren't always entirely accurate. He did keep a vast amount of details with him all the years. The FBI said, quote, he remembers where he was and what car he was driving and draws pictures of many of the women he killed. Oh, Sam, so he drew them after mm-hmm, he drew them in the confessionals. Oh. So he drew 50 portraits of women that he had murdered. and authorities stated quote, "We are hoping that someone, family member, former neighbor, friend might recognize the victims and provide that crucial clue in helping authorities make an identification. In 2018, the death of 34 year old Martha Cunningham was confirmed to be one of Sam's victims. Martha was found on January 18, 1975 in Knoxville, Tennessee in a wooded area off of Oglesby Lane. Authorities attributed her death to natural causes, despite Martha being nude from the waist down and covered in bruises. (laughs) Because naturally that would happen, right? Duh. Um, Maybe she was just (laughs) clutzy. She walked into a lot of doors with her neck.
1: She fell down the stairs.
0: Her pants came off. Yeah, And and then that's how she got bruised. Um, So because of the efforts of James Holland and the other investigators, they were able to close 50 cold cases within a year. Cases that remained cold for decades until 2018 and 2019. What was massively helpful to officially close these cases were those drawings of Sam's and his photographic memory. James called him, quote, a genius and declared how wicked smart he was due to his attention to detail and photographic memory. He also stated that nothing Samuel had ever said had been proven wrong or false. When Holland learned that Sam liked to draw, he gifted him with art supplies, and those were some of the tools used for those 50 portraits, which now hang wall-to-wall in Holland's office. Sam wrote messages on some of those portraits, such as, quote, Sam killed me, but I loved him, um, girl by the highway, and girl by the strip joint. When an interviewer once asked Sam what it was like killing his victims, he replied, quote, It felt like heaven. It felt like being in bed with Marilyn Monroe. Um, He also detailed why he got away with so many murders, stating, quote, I never killed no senators or governors or fancy New York journalists. Nothing like that. If I killed you, it would be all over the news the next day. I stayed in the ghettos. So again, he confessed to murdering um, over 93 women. FBI were able to link over 60 cases. However, many are still unsolved. And I have a few details for some unmatched confessions that I wanted to read off just in case, you know, somebody may know something that they can help the FBI out to identify these people. So unmatched confession, Miami, Florida, 1971 or 1972. Little recounted that in 1971 or 1972. He met an attractive 18 or 19 year old transgender black woman in Miami, Florida. Little recalled her name was Marianne. Little said Marianne was about 5'6 or 5'7 and approximately 140 pounds. And he first met Marianne at a bar known as the Pool or Pool Palace near 17th Avenue in Miami. A few days later, they met again at a bar in Overtown where Little offered to give her a ride home. Little stated Marianne lived with several other roommates between Brownsville and Liberty City. And when they arrived there, one of Marianne's roommates asked them to buy a can of shaving cream, so they returned to Little's car, a gold four-door Pontiac Le Mans. Little drove Marianne north on Highway 27 and killed her on a, high, on a driveway, possibly near a sugarcane field, and then drove her further down Highway 27 into the Everglades and turned down a dirt road that led to a river or a swamp. And Little dragged Marianne's body approximately 200 yards into the thick, muddy water. And he does not believe that the body was ever found. Next unmatched confession, North Little Rock, Arkansas, nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety four. Little said he encountered a black female in a transient area of Little Rock, Arkansas, between nineteen ninety two and nineteen ninety four. He remembered it was cold and possibly snowing where they met. When they met, he described the woman was twenty four years old, five five to five seven, and approximately two hundred pounds. Little stayed with her off and on for about three days. He reportedly shoplifted with the woman, and then. She sold the merchandise. Little remembers being arrested for shoplifting in North Little Rock Kroger grocery store, and records indicate that was in fact true. He was arrested by North Little Rock Police Department for shoplifting from Kroger on April 20th, 1994. According to Little, he was released after approximately three hours so that he could move his vehicle, a 1978 yellow Cadillac El Dorado, or possibly yellow Dodge, off of the grocery store property. Little stated that when he returned to his vehicle, the woman was sleeping inside. He first drove the woman to meet her ex-boyfriend, a man called Bear, who he believed was now deceased, and then drove her back to her residence. He returned the following day and drove with her toward Benton or Bentonville, Arkansas. When they were outside Little Rock, Little drove down a dirt road and manually strangled the woman to death. Little stated he placed the woman's body on a pile of branches and old corn stalks in or near a cornfield. And he believes the woman's name may have been Ruth and that her mother lived in North Little Rock. Next unmatched confession, Covington, Kentucky, 1984. Little stated that in approximately 1984, possibly in the summertime, he was driving his Lincoln Continental Mark III from Lorain, Ohio to Cincinnati. And while en route, he met 25-year-old white female outside of a strip club. He remembers her being 5'6 or 5'7 and between 130 to 170 pounds. Little describes her as having short blonde hair and blue eyes with a hippie appearance. She approached him and asked for a ride to Miami, Florida, saying her mother lived there. Little said that he and the woman drove south on Interstate 75, and when they reached Cincinnati, the two of them spent time downtown on Vine Street. They continued driving together across the river into North Kentucky, and Little described driving to a hilly area not far off of I-75, he drove up a small dirt road to the top of a little round hill where he strangled the woman in the backseat of the car and left her body on top of the hill. Unmatched confession, Las Vegas, Nevada, 1993. In 1993, Little was driving a 1978 yellow Cadillac Eldorado to Los Angeles when he met you a sure black like woman- sure liked yellow cars. I know. Well, I think this is the same Eldorado as the other story. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, when he met a black woman on Owens Avenue or Jackson Street in Las Vegas- and he described her as thin, dark-skinned woman who was approximately 40 years old, was about 5'5 and 110 to 120 pounds. Little believed the woman had naturally short hair but wore a long-haired wig. Uh, he remembered the woman pointed out her son, a black male who was approximately 19 to 23 years old. Little confessed to taking her to a motel room where he strangled her to death. He said that he then placed the woman's body in the trunk of his car and drove to the outskirts of Las Vegas. He pulled off on a remote road and rolled the woman's body down a steep slope. He then threw her clothes out further down the road. It is likely that her body was never found. And then last unmatched confession, um, although it's not the last of the unmatched confessions, just the last one I'm going to read, is the New Orleans, Louisiana in 1982. So Little stated that in approximately 1982, possibly in the autumn, he met a Black female in New Orleans He described the woman as approximately 30 to 40 years old, 5'8 or 5'9", weighing about 160 pounds with honey-colored brown skin and medium-length straight hair. He remembers that she was wearing a pretty dress with buttons on the front. Little said that they met in a club where she was attending a birthday party with a group of friends and one of her two sisters. Little left the woman in his vehicle, a Lincoln Continental Mark III. The woman told Little that she lived with her mother, who was sickly and possibly an invalid. The woman also gave Little the keys to her house, which I don't understand. Uh, Little drove the woman to the Little Woods exit off of I ten, where he turned down a dirt road along the canal um, that was being dredged. They exited his car, and Little put the woman and Little pulled the woman towards the canal, where he killed her and left her body. Afterward, Little drove back to the motel where he was staying in Pasigula, Mississippi.
1: They didn't um. It's kind of weird, like, he notes that she was with friends and family. I know. And then no one reported her missing. They couldn't figure out that that was her for that time frame? I'm sure they probably
0: reported her missing. This isn't all the details of that. Um, But I'm saying, like, they haven't... But maybe they never found that body. But that
1: doesn't mean they can't use his confession to say, oh, it's this person.
0: But if they never found that body, if they don't have, like...
1: No, but they could pr- say it most likely is this person. We think it's
0: this person instead of just being like,
1: We have no idea.
0: I don't know. Well, it's still know, an that. yeah, it's still an unmatched confession. So maybe there weren't any maybe well who knows, right? It's so New Orleans what? is like a a high tourist location. So maybe they weren't from I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway. Um so yeah, so those are some of the Um, basically unmatched, unsolved cases that he has confessed to. Um, There's many more. You can find them on the FBI website. Um, And there's a ton of drawings, like I said, that he did of the victims. And we'll post some of those pictures on Instagram as well. Um, So Samuel Little died on December 30th, 2020, at the age of 80 in a California prison. Um, He had diabetes and heart problems, but it was um, more so that he died of natural causes. And that is the story of Samuel Little. Hmm.
1: That's crazy. So many murders. Yeah, that's I, like I said, too, I wonder if there was more. And then the pictures that he drew, like it's it's kind of weird too. like he drew them at like way after the fact in a lot of the cases. And they obviously were good enough that they could match people some to missing. Yeah. You know, some of them or like, you know, most of them, 60 of them.
0: Yeah, to, well, to I don't cases. know if, if all 60 of the cold cases that they tied him to were a result of the drawings themselves. just oh, or
1: just, like, or just his confession?
0: DNA, for sure. Um yeah. And probably some of the drawings. But yeah, a, a lot of them are still unmatched. Um, but yeah, he kept a, a ton of details in his mind for what they looked like. And um, I was... I don't know if I was reading or listening to something that uh, experts say that for serial killers, they end up remembering a ton of minute details about their victims because they like to relive the crimes constantly in their head because it's like they're, that's how they get satisfaction out of it. It's just so crazy to me that for somebody who has been in and out of jail their entire life, that they went over four decades.
1: Not getting tied to it. Yeah. T- t- tied to any of them. Crazy. Yeah. But he um Stuart Little Stuart Little, no <laughs> great movie. <laughs> the little the little mischievous mouse, um Samuel Little is listed as the most prolific serial killer in US history.
0: Yeah. So episode. um although when I was doing research for the Green River Killer, he was yeah. also it was also said that he's one of the most prolific. So like It is. Yeah. But
1: I think for the time, like when so That Was probably before they found out, or you know, all
0: the stuff from Samuel Little. I could
1: still want to call him Stuart
0: Little. (laughs) Well, yeah, Samuel Little definitely started his crimes before uh, Mm -hmm. Gary Ridgeway, yeah. And, um, but I think because he confessed past him as well.
1: Well, I think because he pled guilty to 48 of them gr- gr- he was uh,
0: sentenced to 48 yeah and but
1: he confessed to like
0: 71 yeah I think it was like 60 something or 70
1: and then literally little is listed as murdering at least 50 people so because that I think because their numbers are so close for
0: I guess yeah what they've been able to prove for sure and and against what they were what they confessed to as well mm-hmm. um yeah, so that's why I said he's one of the most prolific. Yeah. Just because, depending on who you're talking to or what you're reading,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, pretty gnarly. Yeah, that's super crazy. Although I feel like chopping up a body and burning them on your stove at home is pretty gnarly too.
1: It is gnarly, but he only did the one. But
0: you did—you did, you did technically.
1: Yeah, you did technically tie it to um, Louisiana.
0: Yeah. So yeah, those were our stories this week. That's crazy, Jen. That, that was a good story. I
1: thanks. Electric, I liked. I kind of heard about it. Like I said, once you once I looked it up, I was like, oh, I
0: recognize it, but I didn't know all the deets. So yeah, there's a lot of deets to this guy, and I probably didn't even cover half of them. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So as always, you know, I think we do a pretty good job researching, but there's always uh, there's other people always- who really really deep dive and so if you want to go even further into these stories you know check out other things (laughs) as well (laughs) well yeah I'm sure you can find it we kind of we do a decent
1: amount of research but we also don't want our podcast to be like four hours long
0: right and we also have full-time jobs and other things we're doing so yeah so forgive us for not all the deets but we give as much as we can um so next week Stay tuned because we're gonna be talking about. Oh, I don't Ooh. know. I don't know what my. Wait, never mind.
1: This <laughs> <laughs> is stupid. The next episode is going to be one of the other listener requests. Oh. That I researched.
0: I see. So if
1: you sent in a request to do a story and it wasn't the story we did previously, then your story is coming up. Because so far, I've only had two that requested
0: anything. Don't <laughs> say that. You have to make it sound like a ton of oh, people have requested okay. things.
1: Oh, okay, then. Not. Okay. So then edit that out. So no, I-
0: I'm going to leave this in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that'll tell them all.
0: We have so, so many cool. requests. Like, we, we can't even so filter many. through we, all of them. I just
1: can't <laughs> handle one or two. So. I just, yeah, I'm, but. we are so popular. But if you
0: have ideas, you should send in listener requests because obviously we do them.
1: Yes. So you can message us on Instagram or comment on our Instagram stuff with what you would love to hear or have us look into.
0: Our Instagram handle is at suspicious underscore podcast. Or
1: you can also email us your requests for
0: stories or or just to compliment us.
1: Just tell us, Call us pretty.
0: you <laughs> us. Give us coupons for food and tell us we're pretty. And sponsor us. And our email is suspicious at gmail.com. And that's our show. Thanks
1: for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye. That was a terrible one. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> that that was terrible. Okay. Let me. Okay. So. we'll. <laughs> <laughs> God. Oh, please leave your raspy laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll we'll catch you guys on the next episode.
0: <laughs> to the next episode.
1: Bye.